Almost a year ago, Software Engineering Daily aired a week of shows about decentralized technologies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and IPFS. Bitcoin has established itself as a stable decentralized financial network, but that's all it is. It's only used for financial transactions. Ethereum has much bigger ambitions. It wants to be a global computer built on the blockchain, but it, is, it does not yet have the adoption and stability of Bitcoin. IPFS is a distributed data store with an incentivization layer where you can pay strangers to store your content. And on today's episode, we're going to discuss all of these things. Today's guest is Carl Flersch. He's an engineer working on decentralized technology. Carl has written several posts about how to build decentralized applications, and he also writes a lot about how the future might look once these decentralized technologies have gotten some traction. It's a really fascinating conversation that projects far into the future as well as into the immediate uh, you know, one to two year time horizon. Carl Flersch is an engineer focused on blockchain and other decentralized technologies. Carl, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. So almost a year ago, we did a week of shows about Bitcoin and Ethereum and these other decentralized technologies. And I walked away from those shows with the feeling that blockchain technology is going to have a massive impact on our lives, but nobody knows when that is actually going to happen. How long is it going to be before decentralized technology actually affects my day-to-day life? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I would say within, oh, it depends on who you are. Because if you are in the, I think, okay, so it won't have, uh, let me just start over. Blockchain technology is going to affect your lives our lives in the next, you know, just a few years, maybe a year, two years. But the thing is that no one will realize it's affecting their lives unless you're actually working with the technology. So it's going to have uh, an effect on the way that banking works. Uh, Every single bank has a uh, department that is looking into blockchain. But people are not going to, user-facing apps are not going to realize, you know, that they're using any kind of blockchain technology. And that's by design. We don't want to confront the user and say, you know, you have to change the way you work so you can use this cool tech. That's just not how it works. So are these companies like Ripple or perhaps, um, I don't know, like remittance-based companies, are these the first companies that are going to affect the way that we do day-to-day life? I would say that Ripple is definitely one of them. Um, actually, Ethereum is another. The, 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 there are a number of blockchain technologies. Mo- the biggest ones right now are probably uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and uh, you could say Open Ledger. People are looking into Open Ledger. Mm. But it's, it's really the, the idea of smart contracts, even even. At, uh, not even talking about blockchain, it's really smart contracts that banks are really think is going to be uh, very powerful for, for them because they need a, a way to execute code, execute uh, logic in a, in a consortium style uh, arrangement where they can trust that the execution of the code is going to be fair and uh, it's verifiable and 
but without providing a lot of friction uh, for that execution. Right. Okay. So we'll talk about this stuff in more detail. Um, and we have some shows in the backlog about this. But before we get into the technical details, I would like to get more insight on like, what are the what are the impediments to widespread adoption of blockchain technology? Because my sense is that, in large part, the a lot of the tech is there. Like, it's been written. It's it's pretty good. Uh, I know there are these there are certain technical snafus, but my sense is that there are different impediments to widespread adoption that are more based in like cultural adoption or just like people don't really understand it well enough, so they're scared of it. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is. There's a huge barrier uh, culturally, uh, just understanding how blockchain, what blockchain is and why it's even useful. And it's, it's actually not only a problem with the people who are learning, it's also the people who are explaining what it is. A lot of the, uh, the developers that are working on blockchain are coming at it, uh, they're, they're contributing to the technology, but they're not contributing to the learning resources. So there is a huge cultural element there. Um, and from the technical side, the number one thing that is holding blockchain back is scalability, just to put that out there. Um, right now, there is... Uh, block, uh, Bitcoin is tra- it can transact five uh, transactions per second. Ethereum twenty transactions per second. But you know, credit card companies are doing uh, thousands, if not millions, of transactions per second. Okay, well then let's get right into it. What are the scalability limitations that are infringing on Bitcoin and Ethereum from scaling? So the scalability, it comes to, the, comes to the, the fact that every single Ethereum node or every single Bitcoin node is running a full copy of the, uh, has, contains a full copy of the history and is running a verification of every single transaction on the network. So if you think about that, imagine a, it's, it's like a distributed system that has no sharding, that everything, every single computer is running the entire you know, every, every bit. So that is a clear, there's no way that that can scale. That's just, but I thought, I thought that all of the transactions, they, you do have to have all of them, but basically they all get kind of rolled into the tip of the Merkle tree. So it's not, so it's not like you actually have to do a calculation against the entirety of the tree. Yeah, so the using Merkle trees, you get uh, efficiency gains, like huge efficiency gains. But there's still that limiting factor of um, the con- having to t- to do at least to do anything really with every single transaction. Like there has to be some kind of manual intervention, and that's why the holy grail probably for scaling is going to be some kind of automatic sharding mechanism where you have like lightning networks or basically chains, uh, smaller chains that you can then move into the main chain. And maybe only a few people are actually running a full uh, node. And most people are running these partial nodes and they don't even realize it because that scaling mechanism actually goes on in the background. Hmm. Okay. So uh, I want to talk more about those things, lightning networks, um, but uh, let, let's give people somewhat of an overview or a review of the two main decentralized technologies, at least the, the ones that you're most interested in, which are Bitcoin and Ethereum. And Bitcoin has established itself as this very stable network. But like you said, it can only be used for 
uh, financial transactions, uh, and it has even uh, more scalability limitations than Ethereum, which is the other technology that you're very interested in. Ethereum is not just for financial transactions. It's a global computer for any type of computation, and it has a much bigger vision than Bitcoin. Give us more of a summary of the technical similarities and differences between these two protocols. Yeah, so the, the, we can start with the cultural difference. So just like we, we talked about the cultural impediments, uh, there is a fundamental cultural difference between the Bitcoin community and the Ethereum community. And that really drives what these technologies begin to look like. So the Bitcoin community is very much, I mean, there has been a lot of uh, talk in the news about scaling Bitcoin and how they can't uh, increase the block size. And that's just just done a lot of, it, it's given Bitcoin a lot of negative press. I don't actually, personally, I don't think that, that it's, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing um, because you, if you, it, it applies it applies pressure to the system and the system hasn't broken down yet so it's actually I think getting stronger but there's that there's this like pressure to be stable and to be uh, measured in the advancements in the Bitcoin community it's like the stable version and then ethereum from the get-go they were saying we are experimental we're going to use the cutting edge technology we're going to take risks and if you're we're gonna hard fork the network, we're going to do we're going to do everything we can to keep Ethereum on the bleeding edge, and that even comes down to uh, a right when Ethereum started blowing up, when the the price went from something like a dollar to fifteen dollars at one point. Um, right when uh, this is the price of Ether, it's not really a good measure because this is just a technology. That's the interesting part, but for the finance people, they care. Um, but when it was getting really uh, popular and people were like, oh, we need to invest. Vitalik, uh, who is the creator of Ethereum, gave a presentation basically saying that we have not even come close to finishing the Ethereum network and that it is, we are going to rewrite the EVM using WebAssembly, that we're going to, you know, all these drastic changes and that the, the hardest work for Ethereum is not even, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the hardest uh, part of Ethereum. So it's like this, this idea of everyone staying on their toes and we're all just trying to do this crazy stuff that we know is crazy. And I sh- that, I, I'm more into the Ethereum community, which is why I probably defaulted to the word we. But, uh, well, it's, it's very interesting because there's these two sides that you're kind of uh, contrasting. There's Bitcoin, which is more seems rooted in like serious pragmatism, uh, and then there's Ethereum, which is more leveraging the idea that there's this big, big vision. And um, and obviously, there are downsides to both of them. If you go with ruthless pragmatism, you may not get people like yourself who are excited acolytes who want to you know thought, think about the most ambitious things that could potentially be used in the future. Uh, but the, on the positive side, you do stay grounded in reality, which sort of gives you a, uh, a sense of like, um, uh, maybe, uh, co- uh, consistent progress forward. Whereas Ethereum, um, I mean, so you, I mean, you, you have contrasted this idea of the governance problem. So like Bitcoin has governance problems, but, uh, Ethereum does not have governance problems because it has this, this focused leader that people really believe in, but 
you can imagine that if Vitalik, you know, died tomorrow or something, something, something went horribly wrong, um, then that would be totally catastrophic for Ethereum. Whereas I get the sense with Bitcoin, there's so much, so much momentum already, and it's not really centralized in any particular leader that Bitcoin, in a sense, has a little more failover. So how does that, like, how does that lead to how much progress these two projects actually make? Because I can imagine, like, there's there's pluses and minuses to both of them. With Ethereum, if you have this velocity that's maintained by this really, really strong charismatic leader, maybe that leads to really fast feature iteration, but maybe it leads to complete chaos. And then with Bitcoin, if you have this total lack of significant leadership, maybe you can just get mired in bureaucracy. So I, I don't know, contrast these two a little more. Yeah, that's that. You you pretty much hit it spot on. Um, the Ethereum project versus the Bitcoin project is really this. Uh, the Bitcoin is this slow but resilient and powerful. You know, it's like a turtle. Not uh, it's a turtle on you know jetpacks because it's a it's a good. It's moving at a at a pretty good pace, and they have a. It's an amazing uh, code base, but the uh, Ethereum project is moving really like they want to solve scalability within the next year or two years. They want to. They're changing in Ethereum. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum both use proof of work, which is basically to uh, put things onto the network. You need to pay for it, and to pay and paying for it is equivalent to burning electricity. Um, but Ethereum is going to ditch proof of work and move to a proof of stake algorithm, which is basically this uh, interesting recursive financial game, really, where everyone puts money on the fact that the network is going to exhibit a specific state at a specific period of time. And if they're right, then they get rewarded. If they're wrong, then they lose their money. And so it, it gives this, it's kind of how our financial system is working right now, because everyone's betting on the fact that the financial system is going to continue, and that's why it continues. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the, they're going to change the entire consensus algorithm within probably the, the next year, next you know, year and a half. They want to create you know, fixed scalability. It's just like insane. They want to redo the EVM. Just kind of crazy... Uh, Pace. It's a crazy pace, but at the same time, uh, it is definitely very risky because I don't know if either one, either, there's huge question marks if, if scalability is going to be able to be solved or if proof of stake works in the first place in a, in a, in the, the, the algorithm, using the algorithm that they're proposing. Hmm. So the that's very interesting. I hadn't really heard the description of Ethereum as this sort of prediction market for how the state of the global computer will be in the future. Um, what is the uh, what is the technical? What is your sense of the technical management of Ethereum? Is it is it up to snuff? Like I, I mean, Google, for example, right? Google is able to execute on amazing projects only because they have put so much effort into the management structure. Um, I would say the same for all of these other super powerful technical uh, organizations. Um, although maybe, I don't know, maybe Ethereum is more like Linux, where you kind of have this uh, managed chaos by virtue of the 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 way that the project is, is structured. I don't know. So, so give, me, give me a sense of the, of the governance of Ethereum. Yeah, so... Ethereum, I would say the closest uh, comparison is the Linux Foundation, uh, where you do have this benevolent uh, dictator and you have 
uh, a lot of people kind of working within that vision. And the closer you are to to Vitalik, probably the more say you have on the protocol level of the of the of the network. And then the rest of it is just developers like myself who want to contribute to this cool uh, technology. And so there, the, uh, on, on a fundamental level, there exists the programming language, which is used on the, uh, by the uh, EVM, the main one. There are multiple implementations, but the, the main one is called Solidity. And that is just a, it's a basic programming language, but it is focused on this distributed um, Network And so you have the concept of addresses and you have the concept of money baked in. And so it has a lot of these niceties. So that's about the extent of what, you know, the core Ethereum people have. They they created this platform, right? And then they said, everyone do what you want. And so now there are a bunch of organizations, um, including Consensus, which is what, uh, where I work. And there's also, uh, uh, Nexus Dev, and there are a bunch of other dev shops that are just sprouting up around this technology. And so there's really, it is it is a little bit chaotic. It's like that you open the floodgates for these distributed um, applications, these de- decentralized applications, and now everyone's doing whatever they feel is best. And so I would say it does lead to a kind of, if one leader is going the wrong way, then there'll be a lot of people who follow them and mm. they'll, you know, they'll go in that direction and that might not be perfect. And so then there has to be kind of a change in, in the, the momentum. So there's no like, it really is, it's not only a, besides that benevolent dictator who's, who's controlling the protocol, there really exists a decentralized developer force. Um, almost even more than, than uh, well, you could argue that it's even more than Bitcoin because Bitcoin has the core Bitcoin client and that is the state of truth. That is like what everyone uses for Bitcoin. But Ethereum, their protocol is actually defined in uh, mathematics and, you know, a paper, a white paper, a yellow paper. Um, and then there are something like eight uh, Ethereum clients that exist that all run the protocol and they all kind of work and so so you get this every organization that is seriously in the uh ethereum space has like developed a ethereum node so it's a very it's very interesting there are main organizations but they're all i don't know (laughs) it's it's crazy well so so when i did reporting on bitcoin and ethereum last year there was this feeling I got from the Bitcoin side of people that they seemed to think that Ethereum was inherently problematic, um, basically because of all the reasons that Bitcoin, or basically for all the reasons that Ethereum contrasts with Bitcoin. And I have to admit that I let the Bitcoin people win me over, and I ended up doing an entire episode called Ethereum Skepticism, which I kind of regret because... Uh, it was just like a little prematurely judgmental, and I let myself just get swayed by the other side. And it's and and clearly, like not everybody portrays it as a us versus them sort of thing. But there are some people on the Bitcoin side, and probably some people on the Ethereum side who just think the other side is completely moronic. Um, so, I mean, why are people on the Bitcoin side? so skeptical of ethereum do they do they think it's this lack of mathematics this lack of formalism 
Um, do are they are are they thinking that people are just getting caught up in the mania of Ethereum and the and the vaporware and the uh, the bright decentralized vision that will never come to fruition. Uh, give give me an idea of of why people on Bitcoin's side are skeptical of Ethereum. So, after Bitcoin was created, there was the age of the altcoin, essentially, where you had uh, a new coin getting created every few weeks. And why were they getting created? Okay, maybe there was some validity to a lot of them. Maybe Namecoin using a, a, theory, a Bitcoin for DNS. That is kind of cool. Um, but there are a bunch. I mean, I don't want to say Dogecoin because I have never... I just know the name is like incredible. The fact that we have you know a, a, an economy for Dogecoin is amazing to me. And so there was this get-rich-quick uh, ability that you can you can create your own altcoin if you know what you're doing. Say that it's legitimate when it's really not, and people will start paying you. Just making the you you hold a stash of your of the coin and you distribute some of it, but then that little bit gets value, and now you have tons of money. So there's this skepticism that was baked in for good reason for many many years, and then Ethereum comes along, and Ethereum's like, you know, we're, we're going to totally take over and we're going to rethink the whole thing and we're going to build this amazing programming language and it's turning complete and we're, you know, we have all these incredible visions and now give us money. We have a crowd sale. And so it, people are like, oh gosh, not again. Mm. And so, and for, for good reason. Um, the, but I think as time has gone on, uh, the, Bitcoin space has really opened up to Ethereum. For instance, I heard on a podcast the CEO of Kraken, a major Bitcoin-focused exchange, was talking about how he believes that there is a place for Ethereum. So really, the Bitcoin community has warmed up. It's like the, the idea of Ethereum was so intense and so ambitious that no one believed it, but then they kind of executed on it, and it turns out that there is uh benefit and there is a there is a serious value proposition for ethereum ethereum was really the first uh i i the first very different um decentralized blockchain protocol well it's it's yet another one of these things where it's like if it works out it is going to be incredible and anybody that invested in it early on is is going to be rich, and uh, if it doesn't work out, then it will go to zero. And it's uh, it is almost an aesthetic judgment as to whether or like wh- how you feel about it. Um, and in some sense, like the aesthetics, I think the aesthetics discussion also applies to the whole Dogecoin thing. Like, why are you buying Dogecoin? You're buying it because of the name. Why do people buy brand name clothes? Because of the name. Uh, and it's almost like a statement on what you believe about the future. Um, I, I don't know, uh, but we, we don't need to go there. We can go. We could get. Let's 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 stick to the technical track. Um, <laughs> so uh, so we we did we did a show about bitcoins. Uh, bitcoins like feature newer features. The there's the side chains and lightning networks. And side chains and lightning networks. Uh, are they're being developed to give Bitcoin a broader range of functionality, as I understand. So what is the functionality that Bitcoin is trying to build on top of itself? And how does that compare to the to the broad vision of Ethereum? Yeah, so 
Bitcoin has yeah. The, there's the the Lightning Network, which should come pretty soon, and there's the the side chains. And so I, I guess I'll start with um, the uh, Lightning Network. The Lightning Network on a on a high level, without getting to, into crazy details, uh, reorganizes um, transactions and makes it so that you can have these kind of uh, local, um, provably fair. Uh, transactions that will then eventually go to the Bitcoin network, but they won't overload the Bitcoin network. So you have this kind of localization of, of transactions, which is very useful. And that is um, very exciting that it's coming and it's been a long time. Um, side chains are essentially a, uh, a blockchain that is tacked on uh, with Bitcoin and you have this ability to uh, freeze your bitcoins until the side chains uh, coins come back, and it, it essentially what you what you do is you merge mine, and you you can mine both bitcoins and the side chain coins. But the thing that's interesting about this is that what you end up doing is you end up creating more points of failure. So you have to maintain the side chain network independently of the bitcoin network, and what that what that does is that if the sidechain gets compromised, that affects actual Bitcoins. And the reason why that kind of compares and why Ethereum has a bit of a solution for that is that if you create a token within Ethereum, and that is essentially a token would be equivalent to creating a one uh, contract, which is basically a class, if you're familiar with you know Java or something. And inside that class, you would have a field saying, uh, which is a hash map, or it's a mapping in this case, or dictionary saying tokens, and you have a person's name, a person's public address, and then a value amount of tokens. And then you have simple uh, methods inside that say transact or uh, create more, uh, the, maybe the owner can create more uh, total supply. So, so it all lives, This all of this logic though lives within the Ethereum network. And so when you're mining Ethereum, you're actually supporting all of the validation of these coins that live within Ethereum. So if the Ethereum network gets compromised, then yes, those coins get compromised. But on the other hand, on the blockchain network, if the blockchain, if the Bitcoin network is not compromised, that's okay. But the sidechain network can be compromised, which would affect the actual like stakeholders and their Bitcoins. So it's a, it's a it's it's a interesting it's a it's a it's a basically another way to do the same thing but and there are benefits and downsides of both how do you think the two coins or the two economies are going to be trading with each other in the future cuz obviously bitcoin's not going anywhere it seems like ethereum's not going anywhere um, i mean my view is that these things are both going to develop we're going to get to this amazing decentralized future but along the way, we're going to have to have some plumbing that allows Ethereum to interact with Bitcoin. So what is that going to look like? I would say that the closest thing to Bitcoin and Ethereum interaction or Bitcoin and any other uh, kind of uh, system interaction would be a... Right now we have exchanges and these exchanges are owned by a company and they, they manage the transactions. But you can actually take this exchange and you can put it on something like the Ethereum network and you can create a decentralized exchange where the uh, exchange will, the, the program on Ethereum will hold Bitcoin. Uh, it, it, it basically, it has to be frozen and prove that it's frozen. Um, 
and then the you're able to uh, basically prove that the um, using things like oracles and whatnot that one network has transacted value and uh, given it to you know one thing on one network has transacted with another thing on another network but it's a it's a lot of like it's I, I think it's a little bit um, out there in terms of you you can do decentralized uh, uh, tr- uh, exchanges and that's like BitShares. BitShares has the ability to do this decentralized exchange, um, but you have to get the kind of developer support behind it. And right now, BitShares is pretty ugly and not as well maintained. Okay, well, let's talk about another piece of decentralized technology, which is IPFS. And this is obviously an important piece of tech. We had Juan Benet on the show to talk about IPFS. And he said that in order to understand IPFS, you can imagine Git layered on top of BitTorrent, and then you layer the web on top of it. So I still don't understand what IPFS is. (laughs) So what is IPFS... What is it useful for? Okay, in terms of a from a, a, a down to earth version of that, because I hardly even understand exactly <laughs> what that means. But um, it's the, the easiest way is to compare it to what we have right now for the internet. So he, his vision is to take web browsers and the way that they work on the back end and kind of swap out the IP layer um, with the like IPFS. Uh, magic and I, what what that means is, or it's not really swap out, but it's adding the IPFS on top. Um, so the current way that the internet works uses location addressing. So you go to a DNS, and the DNS tells you, okay, the the location of that server is, and then insert your IP. Um, what IPFS does is that it's all about content addressing. And so what you do is you hash your, your blog post, for instance, and you put it on IPFS. And now everyone who has the hash to your blog post can you know, download the blog post. So that doesn't sound very useful yet, right? Because no one wants to remember the hash. But what you can do is maybe you can use something like Ethereum and a smart contract to map uh, domains. Uh, you can map a name to a, a hash of an address. And so now you have this ability to have some kind of DNS for the hashes of content. But that still doesn't solve the problem where if you go to facebook.com, you don't want the facebook.com from 2012, you want it from 2016. So what that, the way that you can solve that is that you can actually uh, use IPNS, which is like a name service, um, which you, instead of doing the hash of the content, you can actually use the hash of the public key. Um, and so if you use that, then the only the person with the private key can change the content. And so if you trust the public key, then you can trust the content. And so you go to the hash of that public key and it will download the latest version of whatever that person wants you to see. And so you can actually just kind of take the internet as it stands with the the IP structure which has a li- uh, like flaws in that you don't if you if you go to a, a a blog post and that blog post is from 2012 and then you go to that blog post 
in 2016, number one, it's doubtful that it'll be there. But if it is there, it's very likely going to have changed or the, the website will be upgraded in some way. And you wanted the first blog post. So, so it, it's useful to have this content addressing. And then if you couple that with the ability to do traditional kind of mutable um, serve, uh, or mutable content, then you get a very powerful uh, system. And there, there's even more intricacies to IPFS. But you, you've written a few blog posts about how to build actual decentralized applications. We've been talking about Ethereum and Bitcoin and IPFS, which are protocols or primitives that we can build on top of. Sometimes talking about these kind of feels like we're doing entire shows on TCP IP or just like these super low-level things that are not... I mean, they're very interesting, don't get me wrong, but um, a lot of the people listening, I think, to the show are people who want to build applications. They want to build Rails apps or Django apps, or they want to build some Java backend service. So rather than talking about protocols, let's talk a bit about how to build an actual decentralized application. First off, how do you define a decentralized application? Yeah, so a decentralized application is basically a an app that does not have a central server that maintains it. And so normal applications are uh, run by a company, Google, Facebook, whatever it is, and they are the users connect to that entity and download the content. And that entity will also handle the storage and the you know, account management and whatever else you, you can imagine. A decentralized application is a, an application that only has clients, basically, um, where you as a client can open up this application. There's no entity behind it, just your peers. And you can communicate with those peers. It's kind of how torrenting works, but it's torrenting with added functionality. Um, and I'll, I'll get into that. Uh, so you, you open up the application and you're communicating with uh, you have this. You have. You can have accounts. You can have anyway. You can. You can basically mimic the um, traditional client-server architecture, but only using peer-to-peer communications. Okay. So. So, so the, but these companies that build, uh, you know, they build replicated. They build, um, you know. Uh, applications that are centralized in some sense, uh, you know, Facebook or Google, they have server replicas. Uh, so, I mean, in some sense, aren't those applications decentralized when they have, when they have replicas of, of all of, you know, they have replicas of the database, they have replications of services. And um, I mean, is that, so I guess that's not the, that's not the sense of decentralization that you're talking about. Yeah, that's the that's more of like a distributed kind of. I mean, these terms are still young, and so who knows really what they're going to mean. But the way the the interesting thing is that you're it's it's actually it comes down to who you trust, and this is a little bit philosophical. But you are either going to trust a company, Google, Facebook. You're going to trust a government. Uh, you're going to trust a bank. You're going to trust whoever, right? That's the traditional thing where there are these large organizations and you can trust them. And, and that is not broken. In our system, we can trust these organizations. And that's cool and that's great. 
the thing that Bitcoin innovated and Ethereum has used to take, try to take to the next level is you can now trust a network. You can have computers that do not trust each other Mm-hmm. all working together and coming to consensus. And that allows you to trust a network. And so the fundamental difference between a DAP and an app is an app, you're using these traditional set, uh, models of trust centered around organizations. And in a DAP, you're using this new kind of trust model that is built around consensus algorithms being run on a distributed uh, set of computers. Okay, great. So one of your posts illustrates the basic DAP architecture, and DAP is decentralized application. And this DAP architecture uses Ethereum and IPFS. So how do Ethereum and IPFS work together? Yeah, so Ethereum will uh, is good for the trusting part, that truth that I was saying. Um, you need to be able to trust an application to store maybe in a list of accounts or if you want a Kickstarter application to store the funds during, like of the, the, the crowdfunding. Um, you have this, this need for the actual application state, like the global state of the application. And then you also have a need for just storing data. And so we were talking about scaling and how that is a huge problem in Ethereum. We can't store every little bit of the application on Ethereum and that, you know, going down to the, you know, minified JavaScript or the, you can't store all of that on, on, on Ethereum because of scaling problems. Um, instead, you can use something like IPFS. So you could even think of, in this case, IPFS is acting very similar to just a torrent. So you torrent the application, you download the application from a group of peers, and then now you have the application. It's just, an any, it's just like any other web application that you're interacting with. But now whenever you say, okay, I'm going to update my account information or I'm going to put money into a, a, a crowdfunding, then it's actually going to be using the Ethereum network and that's where the trust comes from and that's where your account lives. Maybe there's a, a list, once again, of um, public keys to account names. And so that's basically all of the accounts. And then you have uh, a uh, integer, which is just uh, the, the crowdfunding current uh, you know, money, uh, what's it called, currency. And you just, all you're doing is you're adding, you're subtracting from one uh, account's uh, value and adding to the, the um, crowdfunding value. So it's, a, it's, it's very similar, but the main difference is that trust displacement. Would you say that Ethereum is very useful for storing rapidly, dynamically changing content and IPFS is maybe more useful for like more static CDN type of content? I would say that actually um, it's, it's about how much you care about the validity of, um, uh, of content. So, so how, how accurate you want to be, because you pay uh. a price, the more accurate you want to, the more accurate you are, the more money you have to pay. Um, and so what that means is you can imagine our uh, data sphere as a, you know, during a snowstorm, the snow falls and the top layers of the snow are very light and there's loosely packed. They can move around. But as you go down, you get to packed snow and then you get to ice 
And so the ice is like the stuff that's been in the blockchain for a week or for a day or something like that. And then above that, you have kind of the, the, the new stuff that's being added to the blockchain. And then you can even go up and you can start to see this fuzzy layer of just peer-to-peer interaction where you're using things like WebTorrent or you're using things like IPFS where really all the people are doing, they're all holding the application state and then essentially it's going to get checkpointed at some point um, and then kind of solidified into the history of the universe. But it starts out fuzzy. Okay, so let's go through maybe a small example. So let's say I'm building like a to-dos app, but this is a decentralized to-dos app. So let's say I want to build a to-dos app where anybody can post to-dos and the every to-do has a smart contract associated with it that you know, if you accomplish the to-do, you fulfill the smart contract and you get paid for it. So how would we build this kind of to-dos decentralized uh, task accomplishment and payment app using Ethereum and IPFS. Yeah. So first, of course, you need to you need a GUI at some point, and so that can be you can use any kind of GUI technology. You know, technology. Normally, it's web. The web is awesome. HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Um, then, once you build your to do app and let's say React and Redux to do, <laughs> um, and then what you would do is you would put that uh, application data into IPFS. Uh, just, you know, you bundle your, your JavaScript and you bundle everything into IPFS. And within your front-end application, you have a library which communicates with an Ethereum node. And what you would do is you, independently of this application, you create a, an Ethereum wallet. And that Ethereum wallet is basically your account. And this account is very cool because we're actually... At, at, there's, there's work being done to create persistent identity. So it's native to Ethereum. And so every app will use the same identity and the same amount of money. So you create one app or one uh, user, and that just goes across all your applications. But um, you use your username, you use your account, and you're already logged in. Um, and what would happen is you download all of the current to-dos from Ethereum. There's like a list of to-dos on Ethereum. And then it just displays it on your web app, just like any other thing. And now what you do is if you completed the task and people are sure that you completed the task, then you click check, you click the check mark, and now it sends a transaction to the Ethereum network, which updates the state in the Ethereum network using a normal programming language for you know, simplicity so everyone can use it. Um, and that will trigger a sequence of logic, and that could be paying you out. That could be asking all of the other participants if you really did it, and then they have to check off that you actually did it for the, the payout to occur. And so you get this, um, this organized uh, group of people that are trusting they don't trust each other, but they trust the network, and it's this organization, this facilitation of automation. Perfect. That's a really good explanation. And I want to now talk about another Ethereum project that you are working on that's more complex, which is Ujo Music. And that's um, a decentralized platform for enabling musicians to get paid. So this is a great case study for explaining what decentralization can enable. So how does Ujo Music work? Yeah, so right now, the the music industry has its problems. It's 
pretty good com- considering it's been around for a hundred years. But there is this black box where an artist will sign up for with a label or a PRO, and they won't get money for a year or two years. Um, they won't get their royalties for a very long time, and it's kind of upsetting and it's sad. Um, so Ujo Music is trying to fix that, but really uh, first. The Ujo part of it is actually Ujo means container in some language that I don't know, um, and the what it what it means is it's actually going to be a container. The idea is actually building a container for works, and so with the blockchain, with first with three D printing, we lost the ability to kind of this is in this is a an object in reality, and. We are able to actually codify that object and make it manifest in you know three dimensional space now. So it's this blurring of a line between what is digitally true and what is you know physically true, and we're getting closer to being able to cut and paste physical objects, which is crazy. Um, now, what that means is that we need a record of things. We need this. What is reality anymore? If we can now copy and paste everything, what is the original? Uh, what does that mean? Um, and so we can use the blockchain and its permanence to record that reality. Record this is the first person who downloaded the song by Two Chains. This is the first person, you know, X, Y, or Z, Kendrick Lamar. Um, and well, that that's where this this is where blockchain is really going to play a very important role in the future. But Ujo Music is going to take that concept so it's future proof. And apply it to the music industry as it stands today. So they're just like banks have a hard time coordinating. They don't want. They want to make sure that everyone's playing by the rules and they don't trust anyone. The same thing goes on with music industry players. And so if we can create, and what we are creating is a a uh, application which runs on Ethereum, probably in a private blockchain setting for now because of scalability constraints. Um, there's private and what and it, which will facilitate the um, distributing of rights, the tracking of ownership, and it will do all of this in a way that is much more permanent than an SQL table. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So so I'm I'm a musician. I've d- encountered these types of crazinesses that exist even today. My current workflow for uploading music to the internet is I use something called DistroKid, which distributes all of the music to iTunes and Spotify. Uh, my username is the Prion. If anybody wants to look up my music and hear it, you've heard it on the show. Um, but uh, why why was why is this useful to me? You know, like if I, you know, how does this? Because as a musician, all I really want is my music to be heard by people. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, if, if it was blowing up, I would want to be remunerated for it. But my understanding was that basically you can't make money off of music distribution anymore. You only make money off of concerts or sponsorships or appearances or something. And sort of the idea that you actually get paid for people listening to your music, that's dead and gone, right? To some extent, that is true. But at the same time, there's actually a revitalization this year in the music industry in terms of they created all these streaming services and exclusives like Tidal, which are horrible for consumers, in my opinion, but are great for artists that have a big name and can kind of use their name uh, to gain a lot of, you know, gain those monthly subscriptions. Um, 
But this actually, your, your point and your question goes back to the fact that what is blockchain going to do to impact our lives, right? And the, the answer to that question is consumers like artists, most of them are not going to realize they're using a blockchain at all. There is no reason to disrupt the current established uh, user-facing experiences because they are pretty great. I mean, I'm not about to say that Ujo Music is going to compete with Apple Music. That's just not happening. Um, and all the other services that are trying to compete in that space. But the value prop is actually goes into creating, uh, facilitating the ability for... Well, okay, one example that is closer to the artist understanding that they're using a blockchain is there are services that are popping up where an artist can upload. It's like a record label. They upload their catalog and that is, but, and it's, they can see where their money is coming from and where it's going. They have these nice GUIs um, that uh, allow you to kind of manage your music and see where your money is coming from. And those things will be enabled by the fact that we are using a blockchain on the back end and that they're using um, kind of fair payment uh, distribution. But uh, maybe a, a more, uh, in, a, in a, a further away from, from the user, but closer to their hearts probably, from the artist, I guess, in this case, um, is the fact that if we can get PROs, uh, if we can get large organizations to make their processes much more efficient, then both they can save a huge amount of money and artists can receive their paychecks in a timely manner, which is a huge win and almost pathetic that it has to happen. But, but it, I mean, it's, it's not actually, I mean, I don't fault the PROs for, for doing their, their job as they're doing it. So. Well, what I do like about the Ujo Music, music Project is that uh, the way that things are going, you know, people don't, people obviously don't want to download an MP3 and just listen to it on their computer, but that and and that is the workflow that kind of prevents uh, artists from getting paid to the extent that they should be getting paid. Because if if you're reading from your local file system, that read never gets uh, allocated, never gets um, uh, attributed to to the artist. So so the artists have no idea how many people are listening to listens on local playlists or local file systems but as everything moves to the cloud everything moves to streaming or whatever you could have this centralized point where every read eventually gets uh, propagated to so that you can have this this actual proof of record of how many listens a song has um so let's let's uh let's start to to wrap up by kind of Getting the bigger picture, because you've written about this bright, decentralized future, uh, you believe that decentralization will change how we work and how we interact, how we share resources. We started off this conversation talking about how long this might take and the impediments to getting there, but I am with you that we will get there eventually. But uh, obviously, the, the, the question of how much decentralization will impact the world as we know it today depends on how long it takes for decentralization to materialize. So know, paint, us, paint us a picture of the world that you think Ethereum could enable or a decentralization could enable. Yeah, so I wrote a blog post that uh, predicts that in 10 years, a nice round number, we will see these massive shifts in the way that we interact with each other. And that will be facilitated by the 
easy access to a credible source of truth that blockchain technologies enable. That kind of future would probably look something like facilitating an easy way for you to move from one location to another because you have your reputation. It's actually very tied to reputation because you actually are able to own a reputation in a way that is not as dystopian as owning a reputation through Google. You know, you don't want Google to assign you a credit score necessarily and uh, for every aspect of your life. But it feels a little bit nicer if you can control that credit score. And that credit score is not just for credit, but that is for, um, you know, how... uh, like all the, it can it can span your you know how well you pay rent how often you pay rent all these kinds of you know every single um, interaction that you have can contribute to your personal identity and then what you can do is you can leverage that identity to gain to to lower the friction of interaction between humans so this is a it's a, it's kind of a a, a down the line. Uh, let me let me let me say that again. Um, the being able to leverage a a blockchain, a single source of truth that you have um, control over, could enable the um, easing the like the lowering of friction between human interaction, and people can basically get to know each other by sharing their data with the other person and they now have a record for instance like an ebay buyer right and you can expand this to all parts of to all parts of your life where an ebay buyer has a a a score and they have a you know an ebay seller has a score and so if you want to buy or sell it facilitates that interaction because you have this history this immutable history now if you take that and you make it super easy for new developers to create that history, like using smart contracts, Ethereum, it's very easy to write a few lines of code and create a new reputation system. So if you're able to get that network effect of developers, you're able to see these scores being used in incredible ways that facilitate interactions. Well, you you are starting to see these uh, better kind of credit score type of things uh, work in, uh, in real life to d- even today, just not in the, sort of the decentralized fashion that you're talking about. Like the the obviously the problem with credit scores, the problem with FICO scores is that the technology behind them is so bad, so antiquated. Um, it's just not really fair. It doesn't even make sense. But there are more modern companies like Affirm or um, you know, I think about like Amazon, right? Like when Amazon decides whether or not they're going to let me return an item, or when Amazon decides. Uh, you know they're going to offer me some sort of deal. It's a fin- it's, it's essentially based on their backend systems that are processing how credit worthy I am and how and how much they want to give me. You know, Facebook uh, just they recently got a patent on some kind of social thing that's going to let them offer money based on off of you know people's uh, social network strengths. So there are obviously all these opportunities where a, an organization with credit or capital could extend an offer to somebody who does not have credit or capital, but whose 
life obviously uh, shows so much promise that it totally makes sense for that organization to invest in that person by giving them capital with some kind of interest rate or some sort of, I don't know, loose interest rate. Uh, there's also SoFi. SoFi is doing stuff like this. Um, <clears throat> I think this is like actually really, 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 a really, really, really big deal. The finan- the financial servicization of um, of what decentralization can do. And we're already seeing it still in proprietary platforms, but I can totally see it being formalized and decentralized into something like Ethereum or some other blockchain. Yeah, the the what you what you talked about is all of these different organizations that we you know trust. They're creating these scores, mm-hmm. but when you open it up to a fifteen-year-old developer that decides they want to write a smart contract for how to trust you know this thing that you never imagined would even have a score related to it, that's when you start to see real innovation. It's like where we used to have these silos of. Uh, technical advancement, but then we made we gave everyone a computer, and now we can see what happens. So it's really about enabling those network effects and giving everyone a platform that they can trust. Okay, Carl, this has been a great conversation. The time flew by. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I know you're a longtime listener, so I really appreciate your listenership. I appreciate you um, you coming on, and uh, I look forward to talking to you and uh, maybe doing another show in the future. Yeah, that would be awesome. And I thank you so much for this show. It's every day I wake up and I put on a software engineering daily episode. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it, got to stay fresh in the, with the tech. So <laughs> That's great. Okay, cool. Well, uh, well, thanks so much. <laughs>